so I saw Meg 2 this week. Oh, did you really? And I... I it's doing well. Uh, uh, it's doing well at the box yeah, office. Yeah. So we have some friends, including Hunter, who who really love the first one. And yeah. I've never seen the first one all the way through. Uh, I've seen it at, at our friend's house who, who do really love it. They've like projected it at like outside at a party. And I've, you know, been in and out. And yeah, so yeah. we had like Hunter had booked everyone tickets because we've all got um, a list with AMC. So he just he'll just book everyone like here's a group of tickets everybody's going to see this and then you can like back out if you want to i was like "Ah, i really don't know if if i need to see the meg 2 in theaters and then the morning that it was it was coming out and the reviews were starting to come out which were not good no they weren't (laughs) i I just glanced at some reviews and it was like from director ben wheatley and i was like what the hell ben wheatley made the meg 2 and it it was it's just i felt like that because i've been a fan of ben wheatley since like yeah 2009 since like kill list and his and field in england and it's like so he was a independent filmmaker who was making just some really really weird british movies and um I've, i think i wrote about him back when we had the the column a couple of times i, I wrote yep. about him as like a director that that really needed to to blow up yep. and um man i, I didn't didn't pick meg 2 to be the one for him to do it in and there's maybe like there's maybe like three shots in the movie that you're like oh that's a cool that's that's a ben wheatley kind of thing because he was also very visually uh kind of experimental yeah uh, but it's weird. it's weird i don't i don't know i don't know what's up with this it's uh, he's not someone i would have pegged for a super shark movie although he has been up for the like second alicia vikander uh tomb raider, tomb raider movie for years he's been connected with that but yeah. But is that canceled? Is that canceled or not? Because I know they're doing like a a TV show. I thought with like a young Tomb Raider TV show. Yeah. I keep seeing interviews with her where she, where she's like, "We're we're still going to do the the movie," but mm-hmm. I don't know. But um, yeah, interesting uh, installment in his uh, in his resume. I'll say that much. Well, what I find fascinating is that I didn't know the Meg was based on a book series. Yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> There's, I think there's like eight of them. Wow. Uh, some, Did not the, know this. The, the friend group that went to see the movie also have a book club where they read the books. No. Um, oh, my Yeah, gosh. including Hunter. Yeah, we can do a Patreon episode. Hunter can do, give you the rundown <laughs> on multiple Meg books. <laughs> Meg books. Wow. I didn't know this is going to be a... We're going to get more Meg movies than Dune movies. That's going to be wild. Yeah, it's weird because the guy, the main character, the Jason Statham character is like a... He's like ocean James Bond. Like he's a secret agent that works for this like ocean Institute to like stop like pollution and pirates and like anything that happens on the ocean. So the Meg is just kind of like, it's just all like, like the sharks are secondary. It's like, he's, he's this character who has this like multi-book run and it's just usually dealing with big sharks. Um, But yeah, it was wild experience because it literally is like a sci-fi original level movie that, a Chinese studio just threw $180 million at yeah. and brought on Ben Wheatley to direct. Yeah. I wonder who, like who's in that meal. Like, yeah. We should get Ben Wheatley to do this. Mm-hmm. So that was the last thing like free fire. He probably had something else. He, after he did fire. the, he did the Netflix Rebecca. Oh um, yeah, he did. Yeah. Statham just had a fascinating career to me. Like just mm-hmm. like starts off in the guy, Richie camp and then has become like this weird, like, yeah weird like vin diesel type vin diesel type but also goes back and does guy Ritchie movies and guy Ritchie's in his whole camp of his own like his whole like now like charlie hunnam hugh grant jason statham mm. like kind of 
I and mean, Colin Farrell even now, like with the whole gentleman and but yeah, St- yeah, it's just God, I mean, why wasn't Statham in Aladdin too? I'm kidding. We I know I wasn't. <laughs> I know I wasn't in Aladdin too. He didn't need to be. Um, he could be in Hercules though. What who would, mm-hmm. who would Statham be in Hercules? That'll be an interesting question. Anyway, enough. He could be one of the gods. He could be one of the gods. Or just make him Hades. Just go real hard left on how to do Hades. But anyway, enough about Jason Statham movies. Uh, we're here to talk about dystopian movies this month, Thomas. Um, yeah, we're here to talk about somebody playing against type. Exactly. You know? And before- that's our tra- that's our, our segue. It is yes. And before we do that, I am Brand Sparks. I'm Thomas Horton, and this is Nation Podcast. And last week we started our dystopian month with Children of Men. And so, what did we talk about last month? Or last not, not last month, last week, Thomas? What did we talk about with Children of Men? Uh, well, we talked about one shots, but that's not necessarily related to dystopian <laughs> movies. Um, that's just if you're wondering what we talked about. Uh, but yeah, with dystopian movies, we talked about, you know, it's pretty firmly it's a subgenre that's pretty firmly planted in sci fi. Like I can't if you've kind of have to have this like look into the future and, and definitely elements of science fiction to make it uh, to really pull it off. Um, we talked about, you know, I, I, I mentioned in last episode that, you know, it's stemming from a lot of movies in the like sixties and seventies, but I didn't mention, you know, kind of the, the core three, uh, you know, literary, literary works that really launch it. You know, you've got 1985 yeah. brave new world and, um, Oh, Fahrenheit, Fahrenheit, uh, 1984, you mean 1984, 1984, 1984 brave new world. 1985 is the bowling for soup song. Yes. Uh, <laughs> 1984 brave new world. And Fahrenheit 451. Um, but, you know, that that kind of then moves, obviously, into film as, as trends in, in literature tend to do. And then you get a lot of, like we said last week, a lot of Twilight Zone episodes are kind of mm-hmm. concerned with that. Um, just that whole kind of like, what if scenario? What if, you know, the world revolved around this? Or what if this mm-hmm. invention did this? And just kind of the ways that science fiction can warp technology and um we you know we said that almost any science fiction kind of set on earth tends to be dystopic because who wants to see you a utopia it's not interesting it's yeah kind of famously star trek is like the only like utopian work of science fiction yeah. um but yeah and we, we talked about how you know a lot of times it'll just kind of be like one thing you know with children of men it was uh the humans go being infertile and then it's just that's that's the snowball that's the slippery slope like where does this lead society and then you get uh you get a, a kind of fascist government or a dictatorship which tend to pop up a lot in these i feel like yes um and and we definitely had one in children of men but yeah in children of men we you know we saw the ways that all these other social issues could tie back to just this one thing of what if people couldn't have children and that that tends to be what these uh dystopian films focus on are you know we're gonna kind of change this one thing about society and then see how everything kind of falls apart from there yeah and and today's movie is very interesting with seconds by john Frankenheimer because it doesn't fully fit all the way within some of the stuff but like it has dystopian elements where like it's taking those kind of social issues and trying to turn them a little bit. And you had the kind of the secret kind of organization aspect with the company. So it's mm-hmm. like, it's kind of a lo-fi dystopian is kind of what I'm want to classify it as because I really want to talk about this movie because of, I think how unique it is for the time and to kind of show with a dystopian movie, you kind of can 
go different ways with it, but still kind of fall into that category. Because I at first didn't classify this as dystopian, but like mm-hmm. every list I went to put this as a dystopian movie because of these little elements like the company and like the idea of like questions about yourself and this idea of like rebirth, mm. it yeah. kind of all went together. And I think questions, you know, it will, we can, we'll get more into it as we go, but I think, you know, the, the fact that it does kind of leave questions open to like, how widespread is this? Uh, how, yes. how big is it? How big is this world? Um, open kind of leaves it open for that. I mean, in a way it's similar to kind of like when you, we talk about that way, to like Karen Kusama's The Invitation, mm-hmm. where it's like we're seeing one possible snippet of this world. Yeah. And it's going to be so much bigger because there's moments where you can kind of think about that with with uh, Murray Hamilton's character in a way where like and, and kind of the party sequence is that how much this is actually happening out there in the mm-hmm. world is the thing. But. But yes, with seconds, it's currently streaming on Canopy. Did you watch it on Canopy? I did, so, yeah. You watched it, yeah. So it's currently streaming on Canopy. If you have Canopy, that Canopy is free with a library card. It's like you get, I think, eight or nine free rentals a month. So seconds is there right now. Um, be sure to watch it because we're going to be spoiling it today when talking about it. So seconds is directed by John Frankenheimer with a script by Louis John Carlino, uh, based on the book by David L. Yeah, L. Uh, it stars Rock Hudson, uh, Salome Jens, Will Gear, John Randolph, with cinematography by James Wong Howe, and a score by Jerry Goldsmith, mm-hmm. and uh, tile designs by Saul Bass. And so, Seconds tells the story of a middle aged New York banker who's disillusioned with his life, his job, his wife, his house, everything. And he contacts this agency known as the company after he is contacted by one of his college friends who he thought was dead, but is now someone else completely different, it seems, or at least a different voice over the phone. And this company that he gets in contact with specializes in providing rebirths under new identities, new appearances, altered by plastic surgery. So released in 1966, it's kind of, I mean, it's truly is kind of ahead of its time with some of the things it's discussing in this period, kind of right smack dab in the middle of the sixties. But that's kind of who John Frankenheimer was with his movies, this period of times we'll talk about. So you had never seen seconds before Thomas. I had not. No. And I discovered this, I think at cinephile one, one year. And I think ever since I've been like trying to get more people to watch it is, <laughs> is the thing. Um, it's been, it was always, we did movie nights. We, we still do movie nights, but early on we were like, we would, um, I'd give you like three or four options to pick from. And every time I gave three or four options, seconds was always on there and to <laughs> this day. It's never been picked. Um, people, some people would watch it independently afterwards. They're like, Brandon keeps picking this movie, but no one wants to watch it. What is this movie about? But what were your thoughts of this movie coming into it? Having never seen it. And also being somewhat different than say children of men, and some of the movies we're talking about this month. Yeah, I mean, I was I was aware of it mostly because it's in the Criterion Collection, and so yep. you know yep. every 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 time they they're having a flash sale, I just go through and like click a bunch of one, open up a bunch of tabs of movies I'm interested in, and then go back and click them down as I count up how much money I'm allowed to spend on on Criterion. <laughs> um, 
so you know was very aware of it through that was very aware of john frankenheimer uh and and knew that this was kind of an outlier in in rock hudson's career as well but that's that's about it and and just knew it was weird um so that that was yeah that was that was all i knew coming into it and it is uh we'll get into it but it is it is like wild from the bat so you know yeah right right from the first frame i was like okay this is this is this will be something interesting so yeah it was yeah so we'll 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 dive into it yeah this this is one of those hopefully it's not streets of fire-esque where i i introduced to you (laughs) and i'm like oh i didn't like it that much um but i'll go ahead i'll 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 go ahead and show my hand it won't be streets of fire-esque but i did i did while i was watching it several times be like uh I, does this count for dystopian month I know, so, I know. so that'll I be something we can we can discuss and again I, I i was very hesitant to pick it because of that hmm. but literally everywhere i looked people were classifying it as a dystopian movie and even criterion and their kind of essay classify it as a dystopian movie so this is one that it will be difficult where it's it's somewhat of a, a like adjacent maybe to dystopian mm-hmm. but i didn't know where else to put this movie <laughs> when we because i want to cover it as a thing and i i do think it's an interesting kind of example of also to kind of lead into matrix i think next week is that this idea of identity in this world that becomes new to you in a way is mm-hmm. the thing so i think it's just a a, a almost lo-fi version of what you will see within the genre later on with technology advancements. This is just a early version of that, I feel. Mm-hmm. So let's dive into history of how seconds got to production. So by the young age of 34, director John Frankenheimer had directed seven feature films. Wow. Uh, that included critical and commercial hits like Seven Days in May, Birdman of Alcatraz, The Train, and The Manchurian Candidate. But before directing films, Frankenheimer had gained success during the golden age of television. And we talked briefly about this period in our episode on 12 Angry Men and Cindy Lamette, another prominent figure during this golden age. And by coincidence, one of Frankenheimer's first jobs at CBS in the early 1950s was as Cindy Lamette's assistant. In 1954, Frankenheimer would actually replace Lamette on a television project, opening up the door for him to become a full-time director. By the timing of this, it almost seems like Lamette went off to make 12 Angry Men, and that's what allowed Frankenheimer to take a spot. If not, it's pretty close together. Um, hmm. Frankenheimer, similar to Lamette, would then go on to have a successful television career, directing almost 150 episodes of television in a six-year span, many of which were live broadcast. So once the 1950s were over, Frankenheimer, Frankenheimer transitioned fully to filmmaking, from 1961 to 1964, Frankenheimer directed six movies, three of which were released in 1962 alone. <laughs> okay. And those three films would be, or were, coming of age film, a coming of age film called All Falls Down, Birdman of Alcatraz, and the political thriller masterpiece, The Manchurian Candidate, all in one year. So in Hollywood, <laughs> Frankenheimer was seen as kind of this on the rise director who directed entertaining and thought-provoking action and political thrillers. Mm -hmm. In January 1964, Frankenheimer became attached to direct an adaptation of David L.'s sci-fi novel, Seconds. And this film was to be produced by Kirk Douglas, who also had plans to star in the movie. Hmm. 
Frankenheimer would then hire Louis John Carlino to write the script based on the original novel after seeing one of Carlino's plays on Broadway called Epiphany, which starred Shelley Winters and Jack Warden, who was also in 12 Angry Men. Mm-hmm. Um, Carlino was only 32 at this point, and he would, it would be seconds would be his first screenplay credit is what it was. So a lot of young, young guys mm-hmm. at this moment in time. This it's, is that era we've, we've talked about before that kind of, you know, everyone talks about the film Bratz, but it was really these people in like the, the mid to late yes. 60s who had come up within the studio, but like really wanted to change things that, that kind of paved the way for the film Bratz to then come in and do their own thing. Yeah, it's kind of this transitional period, like you said, like, uh, like Lamette and Frankenheimer who are coming in the 50s and 60s, like, like pushing, like coming from that TV thing, because that's the thing with Spiel, mm-hmm. like someone like Spielberg. He comes over from TV as well. Really just also in a few years after seconds, like dual, I think is like 71 is the thing. So yeah, it's really, we're really pushing the boundaries at this point in terms of new people coming in out with the old and with the new. And at this point, after Carlina writes a script, Frankenheimer is attached. It seems Kirk Douglas would have to drop out of the movie due to him being busy with two other films, the heroes of Telemark and cast a giant shadow. Frankenheimer felt Douglas was the perfect actor to play to play both version versions of the film's main character, the old version and the young version. Hmm. A- after Douglas, Frankenheimer felt the only actor after him that could play it convincingly was Lawrence Olivier. And so Frankenheimer would visit Olivier in England, convincing him to play both the young man the the transformation character and then the old man because i don't know if i said this in, in the pitch is that basically a, this young ba- this this old banker middle midlife kind of crisis banker turns to a much younger man mm-hmm. and has a whole new life through plastic and surgery through plastic surgery yeah gains a couple of, like at least a good six inches of height that yeah that was a big thing um <laughs> but olivier agrees he loves the script Frankenheimer returns to Hollywood and he tells Paramount, hey, I have Olivier. He wants to do it. Let's make this movie. And Paramount's like, we don't think Oscar winning actor Lawrence Olivier is a big enough star for this movie. (laughs) How about someone? Well, this is the kind of work. The reports are kind of conflicting of what happened next. And there's probably a truth to all of this. It seems Paramount or legendary agent Henry Wilson said, how about Rock Hudson for the lead role? Paramount said Hudson <laughs> was a big enough star for the role, while Wilson, Hudson, a- Hudson Hudson's agent at the time, apparent, uh, allegedly convinced Frankenheimer at a party to at least meet with his client. But <laughs> That feels but, like one of those things, like everybody else in the room was like, he'd never do it. Like, come yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But before Frankenheimer took the meeting as a courtesy for Rock Hudson, let's talk about who Rock Hudson is, because... We briefly talked about him a few years ago during our Texas month when we covered Giant, which starred him, Elizabeth Taylor, and James Dean. Now, Hudson was born Roy Harold Shearer Jr. in Winnetka, Illinois. His mom was a homemaker and later a telephone operator while his father was an uh, auto mechanic. His father would lose his job during the Great Depression and abandon the family uh, leaving Roy and his and his w- former or his ex-wife, uh, uh, Roy was only four years old. Um, Roy's mom would later be married, uh, Wayne Fitzgerald, a former Marine Corps op- officer, whom young 
Roy despised. Fitz, Fitzgerald would apparently adopt Roy against his will, will, turning his name from Roy Shear Jr. to Roy Fitzgerald instead. During his teen years, uh, Roy would develop an interest in acting after working as an usher at his local movie theater, and he would audition for a number of high school plays, but he never never landed a role because he had trouble remembering his lines, a problem that apparently lasted throughout his entire Hollywood career. After serving in the Navy during World War II, Roy would move to Los Angeles to live with his biological father in hopes of hmm. pursuing acting. Uh, he began working odd jobs, including being a truck driver, which was kind of the more famous story, and working as a vacuum salesman at his father's appliance store. In 1947, <laughs> Roy would send his pictures to a popular talent scout and agent, Henry Wilson, who was kind of on the rise. Wilson was this kind of upstart talent agent in Hollywood who had served as kind of like casting talent agent for some studios, but now is kind of out on his own, and he would take Roy as his client. And one of the first things Wilson would change was Roy Fitzgerald's name, and that would become Rock Hudson. Apparently, the name was a combination of Rock of Gibraltar and the Hudson River in New York. <laughs> okay. Hudson would later say in life that he hated the name, but he would later name his production company Gibraltar Productions, which would later serve as one of the production companies on Seconds. After becoming Hudson's agent, Wilson would become known for kind of kicking off the quote-unquote beefcake craze in Hollywood <laughs> of the 1950s, where it was these good-looking men who weren't terribly great at acting, but were becoming big stars. Uh, Tab Hunter was another example of this that was under... Oh, come of, on. Rock Hudson was better than Tab Hunter. Oh, I know. Hudson would be Wilson's greatest success, <laughs> with, with many of his clients kind of being made in a similar image. Wilson was gay and had gained a reputation for representing closeted gay actors. While not all of his clients were gay, were gay men, people, many people assumed that they were, was the thing. He was also known for kind of preying on young actors, promising them success in return for sexual favors of some kind. It's somewhat dramatized in Ryan Murphy's Hollywood, is the thing. While I have questionable things about that, Jim Carson... <laughs> Jim Parsons plays uh, Henry Wilson, is what it is, as the agent. Um, like Wilson, Rock Hudson was also gay, something that was later revealed uh, in his life, but it was almost revealed to the public during kind of the height of his stardom in the 1950s. In order to protect Hudson from a story that would reveal his homosexuality, Wilson would give Confidential, Confidential Magazine, this kind of tabloid magazine, information on two of his other clients who were gay in hopes of hiding Rock Hudson's homosexuality from the public eye. So running their story instead of Hudson's is what it was, because Hudson was the bigger name in terms the bigger um, money train for Wilson. Mm -hmm. This would I think would, would he would out Tab Hunter possibly with this one. It was like Tab Hunter had been arrested after attending a party, and so that was kind of part of the information that was revealed. Soon after this, to kind of conceal his... His secret, Hudson would marry Wilson's secretary to kind of squash these rumors, but they would later divorce three years later. And after Rock Hudson's death in 1985, many of his Hollywood co-stars would say they knew for years that Hudson was gay and was hiding it from the public, but they never thought, of, thought anything about it. Many said that Hudson was a master of the Hollywood system, being able to create an almost second image of himself for the world to see. 
Now back to that fateful meeting between <laughs> Hudson and John Frankenheimer. Frankenheimer had severe doubts about Hudson playing the dual ages of the lead role. And Hudson actually agreed. Hudson's like, I can't play the old man part. Uh-uh. Hire someone else to do it, but I can play the younger version of it. Um, Hudson kind of thought that it would be a greater shock in the movie if you go from this very different old man to Rock Hudson. Yeah. was the thing. In turn, Hudson doesn't appear till 40 minutes into the movie because of that. Frankenheimer stated that Hudson was one of the nicest guys I've ever met. He really wanted to do this picture, but he would only do it as the second character. He didn't think he could handle the older version. Now, with Hudson being very adamant about doing this movie, many of his confidants in his inner circle who knew about Hudson's kind of secret from the public eye pleaded for him not to take this role. But Hudson had grown tired of the countless romantic comedies or kind of slapdash adventure Mm -hmm. films, and he wanted to broaden his acting range. And Seconds was hopefully the new chapter for him. Yeah, because also anyone who's who's not aware of his career, he was one of those that was like in a screen couple with Doris Day and they just like churned out rom-coms with each other left and right. And, and it was just like, oh, another Rock Hudson and Doris Day movie. Yeah, I'll go see it. Like, I mean, to put into context, this is like maybe not the exact same, but this is like McConaughey going from rom-coms to, hey, I'm going to I'm going to do more <laughs> serious movies. This mm-hmm. is like this is the killer Joe to this is his killer Joe. fool's gold. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's this killer Joe to fool's gold. Um, <laughs> this is so this that's to put in the context. We really don't know about Rock Hudson because he was just he was this rom com, um, or it's like, not the same, but it's like it's Sandler going from comedies to dramas. But McConaughey is probably the better comparison here. Um, but he really wanted to open up his basically go outside the beefcake like charming something a little bit more darker so a year after the announcement of kirk Douglas's casting a new announcement was made and rock hudson was now in the lead role and his production company was also attached to be involved with the film when talking about his ideas for the movie that he wanted to showcase in seconds frankenheimer stated an individual is what he is and he has to live with his life he cannot change anything, and all today's literature and films about escapism are just rubbish because you cannot and should not ever escape from what you are. Your experience is what makes you the person that you are. That's really what the film is about. It's also about this nonsense in society that you must always be young. This accent on youth is in advertising. I wanted to make a matter-of-fact matter yet horrifying portrait of big business that will do anything for anybody providing you're willing to pay for it and the belief that you that all you need in life is to be financially successful so with that kind of idea let's dive into favorite scenes i guess rather the bat what was one of your favorite moments early on or what would what you enjoy about the film early early on i mean the the opening scene is is wild because you've got that kind of jerry goldsmith does it like a very unsettling score and you've got so kind of one character tailing who who we come to find out is our main character but uh how james wong how puts the it's 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 why well, i don't i honestly i don't know what they we'll did there because i know yeah, yeah. i know steadicam didn't exist yet but it almost looks yeah. like uh someone like mounted a steadicam on the on this on the subject's back and then so then the camera's like behind him shooting over his shoulder but like following very closely 
to him and like stabilized on him. Yep. Uh, so it's a very, very bizarre mm-hmm. shot, very bizarre thing to do with the camera. And it just immediately throws you off. And and then he's playing with the with like uh, like sides of the frame, like somebody will come in this side of the frame and then he'll cut and have him go up, go back out the side of the frame that he came in. And it and it the whole thing is is very uh, it, it it kind of takes you takes you off guard and, and makes you not like dizzy, but but you can't really find your footing in, yeah. in this. It's, it's the exact opposite of what you want to do, you know, if, if you're directing like a real chase film you know they talk about like like with a car chase or something it's like well you want to put these like points of objects you want to make sure kind of the frames are the same so when somebody passes this way and then the person who passes who comes the the pursuant also passes the same way you can gauge like how far they are and and it's like he's doing the exact opposite of all of that um it's purposely disorienting is basically what it is yeah yeah and and yeah, it, it's and like because of how the camera is, what's also just disorienting, like I said, is that he's so almost static mm-hmm. and everything else around him is moving so much. And right. also, too, it's again talking about the idea of like kind of creating like like lampposts in a way where you like like road signs where you know where they're at and the geography of it all. Um, I know we talked about this in, at, in one class, like Kwame Solace does this with the car mm-hmm. chase. And in a similar way with how the cars the exact same or close to the exact same Quam Salas, you don't really know who the the person is being who the person is being chased and who's doing the chasing. They're mm-hmm. kind of so close together they look the exact same. And then you have this kind of reveal in the moment where they're on the train and Arthur Hamilton, the bank the banker who we know is the main character played by John Randolph, ends up getting the address. And we finally like take a moment to like get our bearings is what it is, mm-hmm. but it's such a, it is such a very unique way to open your movie where you're right into it. And mm-hmm. especially after Sal Bass's credits opening titles before this, that are also just so haunting in a way. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're trying to find where you're at in the movie very early on, which is a bold move to do is the thing. Yeah. And then kind of leading into that, what I kind of love next with Arthur's kind of character, the well, you have the scene where he's at home with his wife and you kind of have the first phone call with Murray Hamilton, but also the moment when when Arthur goes to bed and against very of the era, separate beds and his wife doesn't know. And they kind of they start she starts to kiss him and you think it's about to lead to sex and they just immediately just there's it's they're both cold with one another basically Mm -hmm. and so much is spoken about this relationship without any words really being spoken here is the thing Mm -hmm. um and it's just kind of a great way to show these not even just this character specifically but these two characters are unhappy with where they're at in their life it's like they both have gotten everything that was promised to them like the american dream of house job good marriage and they're kind of like what's it all for type thing yeah it's you know it's it's and and i'll probably honestly be making a lot of twilight zone comparisons in this uh in this episode because this is kind of around the same era and it's and it's this time when you know kind of post 
post fifties, but also kind of coming on the end of this era in the sixties, like the leave it to beaver era. That was kind of like, Oh, let's look back on the fifties and how like wholesome the fifties were and, and, yeah. and nice and everything. Uh, when you had this, this built in, uh, Con, you know that you had this built-in context you had this built-in vocabulary to just immediately be like look how like boring and miserable these people are and yeah. and uh and twilight zone would do it a good bit as well but it was like you just present it, the, the white picket fence had already become cliche at this point and had already yes. become kind of like a negative connotation to it um so you can just immediately you know she picks them up and She's like, oh, how was your day? And she's like, oh, I, I trimmed the roses. And it's like, oh, <laughs> so that's your every day. It's like <laughs> and and yeah, it's like and then later on and when he's talking to the old man character who's who ends up being the kind of president of the unknown company uh, or what's titled, what's called the company. It's like it's this kind of like breaking down like, you know, your wife don't love each other. Your daughter's moved away. You hate your job like is your life really worth continuing to live <laughs> based off this? And like, again, for 1966, it's like, this is one of those movies I kind of tell people where I think sometimes people just think, and we tell those previous films, like anatomy of murder, where like, and psycho where people think like Bonnie and Clyde happen and just everyone shifted in, in American movies. Mm-hmm. But seconds and like and also but like Manchurian Candidate and kind of these earlier Frankenheimer movies there and even like say Kubrick Strangelove, they're really starting to push the envelope with with kind of critiques of America and American society yeah. that that doesn't all that nowadays doesn't always get looked at as being in that watershed year of Bonnie and Clyde and and in the heat of the night in 67. Um, but this is kind of one predating it. That's also pushing the boundaries as a thing. Yeah. 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 Well, you know, while it's, and, and this is kind of one of the overarching themes of the movie, but they're already kind of introducing it here is while I, I wouldn't say this is like a, like fight the patriarchy kind of film. It is one that is turning a kind yeah. of satirical slash critical eye on, on the concept of like a midlife crisis. Yes. And, you know, whereas probably in in years not much earlier than this movie, you're supposed to go like, oh, well, that's just, you know, that's just men being men. They need to have their midlife crisis. Now it's like that's kind of it's kind of pathetic. It's kind of. Yeah, this is kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's your fault that you're miserable. Like, don't blame anyone else around you. And that's what kind of continues the rest of the movie, because like you're not seeing you're not seeing women doing this the most right I mean, you're, yeah, yeah you, you have a hit you have a hint at one point with nora but then that kind of is like oh no she just works for the company yeah mm-hmm. like and, it's and, all and, white and, men yeah that is something we can we can talk about when we get to kind of the intro to nora but i do think it's interesting that her own story like it, her own storyline is about kind of serving r- serving a man basically in a yeah, way. yeah but but then like choosing to, to like hit a hard reboot on her life mm-hmm. but you know her backstory is like I, I i left i just started over but she yeah. like did it as on, in, in real life <laughs> yeah, in a real on her own is the thing yeah. um but with this kind of against it's, it's kind of this critique of like like i said white men but uh, this elitist type quality because that's kind of talk about one point where the the old man's like yeah i wanted to open it up to uh to everyone in, in the country but like you know i had shareholders and board members <laughs> profit and like sharing profit share i was like wow this feels very <laughs> relevant nowadays 
Um, what's how like again, and if you're doing this kind of art aspect of it, it's like that's what happens when art and commerce come together. Commerce becomes the the major factor a lot of the times with things mm-hmm. with with your decision making. Um, but yeah, with 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 when actually it leads to to Arthur showing up at the company, the kind of like roundabout way he gets there, and when he kind of essentially that moment of when you're fine, you're, you're disorienting where we're disoriented by when he's drugged and you don't really know what's going on, but you see him essentially uh, sexually assaulting this like young woman in bed, but like it's shot in this like nightmarish quality mm-hmm. and you're wondering if it's a dream. Yeah. Or is Cause it's, it's real? also, it's intercut with him like on the couch, which on is couch. just kind of filmmaking vocabulary for this as a dream. So yes, we, we kind of take it at face value because that's what the film seems to be saying, you know? Yes. But then you're basically realize that they're, now that he's entered in the company, they've they filmed this sexual assault and essentially they're using it to blackmail him now to follow through with doing this surgery, essentially. It's this idea of like once you give him a little bit, like you can't just like half commit to something basically mm-hmm. with these people. You have to fully commit to it. Um yeah. And then you get into this, and this is like really within the first 40 minutes of when you get into him having the surgery. Um, you have the tease of the whole other room with the men just waiting, the waiting room with the men and everything. Mm-hmm. But the moment, the big moment I want to talk about is when they do the surgery and we finally see not the full young version of Tony Wilson. But the when he when we first see Rock Hudson in the role, yeah, and Hudson, you have that moment too when he's in bandages, he's trying to talk, and they're like, "Don't talk, your vocal cords are resetting." Blah blah. blah. But when you had that reveal of Hudson and the and and on the like with gray haired and the kind of the the scars, I mean, it's really just a almost a heartbreaking moment, like heartbreaking performance from Hudson. Cause like, I this is where you start adding the context of his real life into the role here, where he gives this performance. I think where he's again seeing this other version of himself. But Hudson's just to me, Hudson's great in this one non-dialogue moment here mm-hmm. when he reveals himself. What are your thoughts on kind of the whole transformation in general with Hudson? Yeah, I know it's great. I mean, I. I kind of love the tease leading up to it. I think it would be interesting to see this and like not like, you know, if you're somebody that like stumbled into a movie or back in the day when people used to just go see whatever was on, yeah. and like not really know, have clocked that like Rock Cousin was in it. And, and then, you know, you get the they've got kind of the blueprints of like they, they show like his old face and then they kind of point new down face, yeah. to to what his new face is going to look like. And it'd be kind of like, oh, OK, they're going to make him uh, they're going to make him young and handsome. And then. When they take it off, you're like, "What is that, Rock Hudson?" But, but yeah, it's not. It's I. I was, yeah, because they take it off, and he's still got kind of like gray hair and the scars. Yeah. And I was like, "Oh, is this is this what we're gonna be doing for this movie?" But then you know, he as as he heals, he turns into to full Rock Hudson at his at 100 handsomeness. Um, yeah. But no, he's 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 great in this in this portion, and and yeah, I'm, I'm I. I like the guy from the from the first half. I and I totally get 
not having him play both i'm very glad they didn't but but it's 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 good when he shows up i'm like uh, let's go We're, we're in it now yeah yeah john randolph who plays arthur hamilton john randolph is is clark griswold's father in christmas vacation oh yeah okay and tom and tom hanks's grandfather in uh you've got mail hmm i knew cecilia she used to own the bookstore we went on a date once i think yeah yeah, yeah. um but he's really good here um but there and then and then hudson and yeah hudson the kind of like like what can i do like i don't i don't oh well you wanted to be here look at the here listen to the red ball red ball here and i oh you wanted to be a painter or like a tennis pro or this and it's like it, it is interesting kind of again him trying to like find himself again and start this new lifetime and this kind of critique of the the um, a man's midlife crisis is it's just like it's becoming such a bigger deal than what it could have been is the thing with mm-hmm. with this character and yeah you and, and pretty much from the beginning even when when it's randolph the the character and then with hudson already has like s- doubts like from the beginning like it's not oh, yeah. like he's not gung-ho ever about no. this no well then hudson okay so we'll so we'll, d- we'll dive into kind of, hudson goes to his new life he has his malibu home mm-hmm. right on the, right on the beach and he's again he has a butler but there is that interesting moment when he gets off the plane after finally becoming tony wilson and he sees that man at the airport. The guy yes. who's like, yeah. and, and this is Tony, never, Tony this Wilson. Is, this is never really answered, but it's mm-hmm. an interesting, like lingering question is how did this guy know him? Is it uh, like, did he, is it like a, a body that's been used over and over again? Yeah, that's, but, but then they, they, they continue to talk about like how good, the plastic surgery was for him like oh yeah. you're my best work yeah i don't that 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 part i i don't know i don't know the answer to yeah. that because yeah i think the easy answer would be like oh they're actually just like you know if you sign up for it then they just like place somebody into your life kind of thing uh yeah. like cutting corners but uh but then that's obviously like not it um yeah see so yeah, i don't but then they they do say like because he says you know that's crazy when they tell him oh here are all your like diplomas and he's like that's crazy you can't counterfeit that and they're like oh believe me it's all real and so it's like yeah is there was there a tony wilson and he's just replacing him and what happened to tony and yeah i don't know and the ending somewhat kind of because i was because the ending is also very very ambiguous and and you're trying to figure out is it the same thing again are they killing him again big jump are they killing him to let someone else take this body over again or something. It's not completely clear. Yeah. Cause also- I, my, my read for that is that they're, they're using him for a cadaver for something else. That's what it is. You're, you're yeah. right, right, right. Yeah. 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 Um, for, for someone else to take over in a different bot or a different right. life, basically. Um, but he then he, he has the Butler still again. And one thing that, that Hudson does, I'll say it here is that like, Hudson and Randolph hung out together a little bit early on so Hudson could mimic Randolph's mannerisms and Randolph learned how to be left-handed to mimic Hudson is what it was. They're trying hmm. to have similar mannerisms throughout. And I think it's, it, it's, it's subtle and might not be noticed a lot of time, but, the, but it's the small changes I think make it. Cause I, I, 
to me, it feels like they're the same person because mm-hmm. that self doubt and, and, and reluctance is always there. It's what really helps. Yeah. Him. I mean, rock Hudson does, he does not carry himself like rock Hudson. You know, he had a no, very, very distinctive on-screen persona and he, he doesn't, he's, he's acting, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Which I, I don't, I don't mean that to be derogatory because I, I really like rock Hudson and, and I think you and I both sang his praises in, in giant specifically, yes. but, um, yeah, it, it, he he was of an era when they didn't really ask their heartthrobs to act that often. So no. so he always had it in him. He just doesn't wasn't necessarily asked to to do it very often. I mean, in a way, not to, I'm not saying who's better or who's worse, but like it's similar to what ends up happening to Elvis after this, where it's like Elvis just sing. We don't need you to act. Mm-hmm. I know you want to, but just be a movie star is kind yeah. of the thing, and that's kind of what Pe- people is. are here to see. Elvis, they don't they don't want yes. you to be like a cowboy. Or and and Rock Hudson, in a similar fashion, like Elvis, they have these different images, separate images from themselves, and they want to be considered legitimate actors and want to do more, but popularity takes over there and it creates that second image. Um, but yeah, he meets Nora on the beach, and you kind of have this possible romance blossoming with Nora. Mm-hmm. And so you had some stuff you wanted to say here with her, right? Yeah, cuz you know, they they kind of sit and talk about her past and she mm-hmm. she says which I don't I don't know if it's real given what we find out later on, but uh, yeah. um I like to think maybe it is or or maybe it's just something to hype him up, but I, I think it is important that like her past is she was kind of stuck in in your your suburban housewife role. Mm-hmm. And she just decided to walk away. And, it, and I, you know, I think in, in that moment, it's immediately just like, oh, she did it the the real way. Like the yeah. way that if, you know, the, the way that, that if you are going to do that, if you are going to hit the hard reset on your life, it's going to be difficult. And yeah. and he and, and this man here took what was presented to him as the easy way out. Uh, yeah. let, let somebody else do the hard reset. You don't have to have a conversation with anybody yep and and you just go to sleep and when you wake up it's you got a new life yeah and also this idea of like letting others suffer through pain while you enjoy a new life is the thing yes because he's unaware of how his wife's gonna feel of Mm -hmm. how his unseen daughter which we'll talk about a little bit later um will feel about it like he it's like he doesn't really care and then it comes comes back later that he realizes that no matter what he does, his issues will always be the same unless he makes a yeah. interchange, basically, yeah. is the thing. That's the whole thing. He's always going to be the same person. Exactly. He can surround himself with new people, but... Yeah. Um, now, let me ask you about the grape scene. <laughs> wild. Absolutely wild, man. It is wild. Um, what are your thoughts on it? Well, first off, what was this movie rated? Um... I will let you know okay. now. We'll go more in depth. That was not in the original release of the movie. Oh, okay. Okay. Because it's it like was in, it was in the original cut. It was not in the original American release of the movie. Because I'm watching it and there's a lot of. Or portions of it were not, I will say. Yeah. Because uh, there's a lot of nude people jumping and, around and full frontal nudity and yeah for a while they were for a little while they were cutting around it and i yes. was like oh this is like 
but you know they, they talk about you know how the the mpa went through psycho with like a fine tooth comb to yeah. like make sure there was no nudity and i was like they had to have gone through this one over and over again and then it was maybe a solid like two minutes into the sequence and then it was just like full nudity and i was like oh okay <laughs> never mind where they are doing it they yeah, thought yeah. they were just cutting around it creative creatively but um but no here, there we are when was the the mpa rating started because there was yeah so 68 so that so that's this isn't that weird period where there's not really a ratings board so things are just kind of being released like it's like self-censorship again but Mm -hmm. it's not being it's not a haze code but there's no mpaa yet so it's like you're kind of stuck in the middle it feels like at this point in time Mm -hmm. um but there were reasons of why it was cut by other organizations that stepped in basically as we'll talk about but it's a very big i mean it, it's it, it's a very ahead of its time and what's doing and showing yeah um and hudson's really great hudson because he talked about how like, hudson plays it as if he's john randolph or as arthur hamilton an older man who's been thrown into this early summer of love swinging 60s free love type atmosphere and he's very shy and not sure what to do. Is yeah, because we're supposed to, you know, whatever that guy in the airport says, he's like, oh, you can't you're too busy. Got all those models up at your house. Like, yeah, very. Yeah, it seems it seems like whoever this man is supposed to be should be should be into this. You know what you asked? You asked me what, what my opinion on this scene was. I'll say I'll say one thing right here. Mm-hmm. I'm not drinking that wine. I don't, know. <laughs> I don't care who you are. I'm not drinking that wine. I don't care who you are. I'm not drinking that one. That's a lot of people in that, in that, in that, uh, grape mm-hmm. stomping. And, and like, that's like about 40 people. I feel like just that's, like, that's not hygienic. No, I saw some dirty all. feet. I saw some yeah. dirty feet in that. And that's scene. <laughs> it's, it's just, it's just refreshing and like, uh, exhilarating for them, Thomas. That's, mm-hmm. that's the whole thing. But we, he kind of has this like, kind of high moment where like i think he finally like lets go for mm-hmm. a moment and he has these nice moments with nora because because it, it, it cuts them later like, on the beach correct they have like a moment yeah uh, and like the sunset mm-hmm. and then we go to the party scene yeah little, and this little is time, what, a very very obvious time jump like they're they're like a an established couple at this point couple, and, and are yes. kind of having neighbors over and, and whatnot yeah and this is when everything starts to crumble because basically like he's gone through the honeymoon phase of having that other life. And then all those, those old problems start to come back is that mm-hmm. I don't really love being a painter. I don't really want to know what I want to do. I don't like the people around me. I'm still just an empty person on the inside. Yeah. I don't like making small talk at a dinner party. Like, yep. Could have done that at home. <laughs> yep. But he gets drunk and he starts revealing about revealing his previous life about how he has like a daughter. He knew this person here and this and that. And all the you begin to realize that a lot of people in the room are also considered reborns and there's mm-hmm. more of them out there. And of course, it's all white men. And yep. then you have that moment where they all grab him and pull him into the other room and basically saying, you got to stop this. So people don't know about this. Like you're going to ruin this for all of us. And then he has that moment where Nora comes in and she's like, what the hell are you doing? And he has that. 
very brief moment where he thinks that she is also a reborn and he find out later she's not. Mm-hmm. But like Hudson, this breakdown he has in this move in this uh scene from the whole party of spilling stuff and being drunk and then crying. I mean, it really is a great performance from him. Like mm-hmm. you're really starting to see him for someone who's only this movie for almost just half of it, or basically just an hour essentially. I it, he's showing his range here is the thing. Like he wanted to do that with this movie. And he's starting to do it here. Mm-hmm. And then that leads into the uh, another kind of key scene of the whole entire movie is when he goes back to see his wife from his previous life. Mm-hmm. And he realizes that she was empty as well. And that their marriage wasn't really hadn't it was, was yeah. kind of dead. And and she knew that he was empty. Like, yes, <laughs> she's yes. very aware of it. <laughs> And like she's essentially talking about the idea that a woman that Nora moves on, his wife moves on. She Mm -hmm. like cleans out the garage. She changes out his study. Changes out his study. Sitting room. Sitting room. Because he says like, yeah, it's like oh, this used to be a study. Oh, how'd you know? Like she essentially kind of, I think, got rid of all of his paintings. Like just really got rid of him because it's like oh, he was a man. He was kind of empty. Didn't know what he wanted to do. But she's kind of taking his death as a new life for her. And yeah. I wonder if he's coming in thinking she's going to, wanting to her, see her depressed that oh, he's 100%. gone and show that his life meant something, but he's finding out his life didn't mean anything. And he yeah. ran away from not, ch- he could have changed it. Yeah. He wanted to walk away and be fine, but wanted her to be yeah devastated. He wanted her to be like devoted to him. Whereas he could could just walk away and be, you know, unfeeling about it. And in reality, she's doing better than he is. is the whole thing. <laughs> and again, it makes him be like, oh, I can do it differently. Now I just need another fresh start. Mm-hmm. Like that's saying it's so great. He could easily in his body he's in yeah. do a whole fresh start. Yeah. But the only like, people no. you've met are also seconds. They would totally understand. Be like, hey, guys, yeah. I'm going I'm to give it another go. There we go. <laughs> But it's like, no, 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 let me give me a whole new body. It's like he's still like while he's he recognizes his flaw, he still doesn't change it is the thing. Mm-hmm. And I do love the moment where like she gives him the tennis trophy that was the key early on late earlier on in the movie. Um, but then you have the key moment later because I have I have three things coming up here and jump in when you want to of like when he goes back and, and when he meets Charlie mm-hmm. at the company and Murray Hamilton, I'm always gonna love a Murray Hamilton appearance. I'm always. What we? What did we have him in not long ago? Anatomy of Murder. He was in. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's the yeah. he's the bartender. He's the bartender. Yeah. yeah. That's what I was. That's what I was thinking of. Yeah. And he's great. He's great in that. But yeah. So how? how so with these scenes, what are your thoughts with these kind of last few scenes? Yeah, I love. That's that's probably my favorite scene in the movie. Is is him meeting with Murray Hamilton, and, and you know, it gives you a little bit of. It gives you a little bit more information. It's a little bit of of um, exposition, but but Murray Hamilton's so good in it that when he when, you know just like the single tear starts coming down his face, oh, he's like, "Are you crying?" He's like, "Yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm, because you're here. I'm I'm gonna get another shot." Yeah. Um. So, question. Yes. Do we think Charlie gets another shot? It's a great question. I think he does. Yeah. So the, he brought, the reason he brought, that, someone, he brought a rat, he brought someone yeah, in yeah. is the thing. So it's all about pyramid schemes in the end. <laughs> um, 
Yes. Yeah, but the, I, I also just I think that's such a great moment that that there, there's there's so, there's no big like twist in this one. You know, there's no big like Twilight Zone twist yeah. of like one single moment of like the twist. But but you know him him realizing all these people around him are seconds, and that there's so many more seconds out there than he thought. That's a mm-hmm. great moment. But then I think realizing because he went in before and saw all these men in the waiting room, and and to come back and realize that all these men are also waiting to go again is yeah. such a good reveal to be like oh yeah, yeah nobody's happy nobody's like yeah. really happy with this um because you know you're just changing your face you're not changing any of your problems and and it's not this isn't a, a problem that is only resigned to you like everybody's yeah. going through the exact same thing and it's just like even kind of darker turns like they would rather wait for literal years mm-hmm. in a room than actually have a go at it and making a change. Yeah. Yeah. To try and fix the problems themselves. But yeah. And yeah, Hamilton's great. And then Hudson's just kind of like, well, look, you're going to need me to help the next guy. I don't want to do that. I want to get started right now. And then you ask this question, how many other men have done the same thing that Tony has done where mm. they haven't given another name and they, it's, I don't know if you can, can you, can you make a jump to like, is this also similar to like naming names in Hollywood in a way where like, it's going to be a big jump here. I don't know. <laughs> but there's a reason why I said it is because three of the actors in this movie, as I'll say later, were three actors who were blacklisted previously hmm. with John Randolph as Arthur. And then the old man, Will Gear and the guy who plays Mr. Ruby. Uh, I think John Corey. I don't. I don't know that it's presented as admirable in any sort of way. It, yeah. It's. It's more of like he, he's not. He's not like shielding anyone else. He's just being impatient. Like. Yeah. Well, I'm like, saying like just the idea of naming names so you can get ahead. Yeah. But putting them in a in a um, a more difficult position, basically. Yeah. 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 I wonder, um, wonder there's something there to that. Yeah, I could see that, but but yeah, yeah I, I don't think he's glorified in any way for like not no. naming names. Uh, no, it's uh, yes, it's very like very caring of him. Like I want to speak to the manager. I deserve <laughs> to jump the line right now. Um, and that leads to kind of these two last scenes when the old man comes to Wilson. We kind of mentioned it later uh, or earlier about like him talking about profit shares and board directors and how the whole thing started as this dream of his to like. Yeah. I really had good intentions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the business side took over. And if I have to get do what I want to do and keep following my dream, I have to conform to it. Mm-hmm. And and it's kind of like, well, maybe I didn't have a dream to begin with. It's like, well, maybe that was the issue is that maybe you didn't want to go for anything. To Or old man saying to Wilson, and that's what made you put, put you in his place. Is it because you had on the strive for? You were living an empty life, but you mm-hmm. could put all these other things into it. And God, just the what leads in, uh, what after that, what leads into the, to the next scene of of Tony on the gurney, essentially being led to. I mean, is being led to uh, be killed, mm-hmm. be executed, and Rock Hudson. It's almost emotional watching this to me when you add this layer of context of Rock Hudson himself having a different image of himself living in this kind of different version. 
the like utter panic and agony he's in when he's shaking in the gurney and the way Frankenheimer cuts it, the way James Wong House shoots it where it's so in his face. It's, it's incredible and astonishing, honestly, mm-hmm. for me. And, and, and like, uh, aggressive, like, yes, it, it's, you can't get away from it. He's just no. screaming, screaming, screaming. And, and you, you just, it's, yeah, it goes on for a long time and it is uncomfortable. It is. And there, and like, there's no happy ending in this. It's like, it's, no. it's like, it's like you're led to watch this man go to his death and you're not being, like uh pulled away from it mm-hmm. is a thing but it does have that and then that's another kind of twilight zone comparison i'll make it has that kind of morality tale like you're, you're you you don't feel happy about the the comeuppance coming to this yes. man but you completely understand it. like yes you don't want to sit there and go like oh i'm glad that guy's dead but but there is this like oh i completely get he got himself to where he is right now and he has to face the consequences of his actions and then my last question what's your take on the final image of the movie it you know i i, I this idea that like maybe he missed something you know yeah he missed something that he wasn't you know he wasn't gonna find doing these go you know it was in his past yeah. it wasn't in creating yeah. like a new a new present for himself yeah and and that scene is in reference to something else. And we'll talk about here in these next two sections um, because some stuff was cut that maybe would clarify that more. And I want to ask you, is it, is it better to be ambiguous or to have more of a connection, but we'll move into onset life real quick. So filming would begin for seconds on June 14th, 1965. Uh, with a budget of $2.5 million in Scarsdale, New York, and then New York City. Um, in order to successfully shoot a transition sequence in Grand Central Station, Frankenheimer hired a Playboy bunny to pose as an actress filming a scene where she stripped down to a bikini in the terminal, and screenwriter Louis Carlino played the director for this decoy shoot as Frankenheimer shot the other scenes for the opening, I believe, uh, uninterrupted from onlookers, basically. So the whole walking down the stairs with the, um, with the camera, and that mm-hmm. leads me to J- to James Wong Howe, the director of photography, um, who had pioneered so many different techniques at this point in time. Howe had been working in the industry. Uh, this Chinese cinematographer who came over to America in the 1910s, I believe, and had been working for decades and become one of the biggest cinematographers in Hollywood. Um, he shot the scenes um, inside the company. Um, with kind of this like innovative system featuring kind of complete lighting steps for close-ups and long shots um, and just kind of really use the sets in a whole new way. But for the, the contraption on that kind of gets the, the camera aspect you're talking about in the opening and also in the party scene with Rock Hudson, um, he basically mounted this the camera on the back of the actor to where it stabilized it and they would walk through the scene. And hmm. it was kind of the early version of the Snorri cam that like directors like Darren Aronofsky use where it's like in front of them and you're seeing their face as they're like running and they're staying static, but everything else around is moving fast. It's hmm. an early, early version of that. The production after the, after the New York stuff would then move to Malibu uh, in Los Angeles where most of the, re- where the rest of the sh- show or film was made uh, or the Malibu beach house is actually filmed at Frankenheimer's own home. 
oh. where Rock, I think where Rock Hudson is, or it's either Rock Hudson's house or Nora's house is uh, is Frankenheimer's house that he was in. An actual rhinoplasty operation was filmed to provide shots for inclusion in the depiction of Hamilton's plastic surgery. Um, Frankenheimer had to shoot some of the footage himself after the cameraman fainted from watching the surgery. <laughs> As I said, Frankenheimer hired several blacklisted actors who had not worked for several years. It was actually John Randolph's first film in almost a decade after not being in a film since 1955 after him and his wife, Sarah Cunningham, refused to name names at the House on American Act- Activities Committee. Um, Frankenheimer says he hired them intentionally to make up for all those frustrating years as a director at CBS in the 1950s where he lacked the freedom to do whatever he wanted and hire whoever he wanted. For Rock Hudson, many of the actors on set commented on how serious he was on set. They say he was intensely focused on what he referred to as the big reveal, where Arthur Hamilton sees his new face. The similarities between his character and Hudson's real-life persona was not lost on Frankenheimer. He said, if you look at it, he was kind of an invented personality, wasn't he? And he identified with this guy. If you destroy your past, then you're nothing. You can't function. And to become Rock Hudson, he had to destroy a great deal of his past. Hudson's movie star image was essentially his alter ego. This is not this is not a quote from Frankenheimer. This is what what has kind of been assumed is that Hudson's star image was essentially his alter ego, and he would jokingly refer to it as Charlie movie star. <laughs> was the thing for the scene when Tony gets drunk at the party? Frankenheimer encouraged Hudson to get drunk for the scene, and Hudson agreed to do it. Slum Jens, who plays Nora, said something happened to Rock there, and it was a breakdown. Frankenheimer got him drunk and he went to his crying, this, this, this crying jag that was very serious and it scared us all because we really didn't know what was going on. I was told at the end of the day that we would have to reshoot that scene because none of it was usable. From what I can find, they didn't reshoot that scene. That's what's in the movie um, of when he's crying on the bed and kind of going around the party. Oh, wow. The grape stomping scene was actually based on a real life ritual that happened every year in Santa Barbara. A lot of the people in the scene were people who actually took part in it every year. Um, many of the cast said Hudson was nervous about the scene. And they believed that most of his contemporaries would have flatly refused to do it, but Hudson agreed to do it. For the scene, James Wong Howe shot the scene with seven handheld cameras to capture the action um, throughout. Only the hospital sequences were filmed at Paramount Studios, while all others were on location. Hospital sets, including wavy floors, transparent ceilings and walls, suspended beds, tampering perspectives, and doors that somehow seemed too small to go through, were created to demonstrate the protagonist's point of view. Hmm. Um, Screenwriter Louis John Carlina remembers that another scene that Hudson was uncomfortable with was the gurney scene. He said that Hudson became very agitated and Frankenheimer wouldn't allow them to release rock. So what you see in that scene is the real panic of being restrained and not being free as, as he wanted to. That's real stuff there. He was genuinely terrified. Wow. And that leads us to aftermath. So the opening tiles, of the, the film were designed by Saul Bass. As I said, um, Frankenheimer said that Bass was the only one who could capture the essence of the movie. And then during the editing process, Frankenheimer had started to make some changes to the movie. He took out a scene where Arthur meets his daughter in California after his transformation into Tony. Um, I've also heard that he saw his daughter before he turned into Tony, but I think it makes more sense that he saw her after he turned into Tony, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, It was actually Frankenheimer's wife, Evans Evans is his wife's name, 
who pr- portrayed Arthur's daughter in the scene. Um, Leonard Nimoy, I believe, also played the husband of her, is what it was. Um, Frankenheimer later admitted that his decision to remove the scene from the film was a poor decision, suggesting that it weakened the second act. Another sequence that was shot was when Tony encounters a father and his young daughter on the beach. Uh, it was removed from the final cut. A brief portion is the film's final shot when Arthur mm. recounts when he dies. Um, Lewis Carlino confirmed in a 1997 interview that that was the scene that was cut. He also basically Hudson, he said, uh, intercounters his father and young daughter on the beach. And for Carlino, it was a key scene for him. And he believed without it, the last image doesn't make sense. Mm. With this being somewhat of a different role for Hudson, Paramount had to think differently on how to release it. Paramount's publicity chief, Bob Goodfried, uh, said, we just don't know what to do with it. It's <laughs> a very interesting movie, but the Rock Hudson in this movie isn't the Rock Hudson the public is used to seeing or wants to see. After plead after pleads from Frankenheimer, Paramount decided to premiere seconds at the Cannes Film Festival on May 6, 1966, feeling that the European audiences would be more open to a different version of Rock Hudson. Uh, Carlino, the screenwriter, says it would end up being the exact opposite, with the film being booed by the French audience. He recalled whistles and catcalls, saying it was a great shock to all of us because we thought we had something that the French audiences would love. But of course... (laughs) But of course, once the audience found out Hudson was in the audience, they broke out into massive applause for him. Um, reports also said there was laughter during the film's press screening at Cannes as well. Frankenheimer, who was shooting his next movie Grand Prix in France at the time, actually decided not to pre- not to attend the press conference for the film because the reception was so poor, leaving Hudson to do it alone and answer all the questions for it. Nearly two months later, uh, they uh, Paramount blamed the negative reception at Cannes on the subtitles that were not consistent with the dialogue as a way to try to do damage control on the film. Paramount would then have Frankenheimer make cuts to the film before its American release, specifically the grape stomping scene, taking out all the nudity in the scene. Frankenheimer said the Catholic Church object to the nudity, and that's why they had to cut it. He ended up cutting out a total of seven minutes out of the film. And so because Paramount didn't know how to release it, they didn't know how to make a trailer for it or market it. Was it a sci-fi film? Was it a suspense movie? Could they make it kind of a romance movie because of the the doomed Nora, um, Tony relationship instead what upset Frankenheimer, they decided to kind of market it as a horror movie in some way or a thriller. Mm-hmm. Um, cause if you watch the trailer, as I said, it's like, it's almost like invasion of the body snatchers what's a second who Where could be the, there there could be one yeah. behind you right now yeah again it's again it's trying to do this like kind of communist kind of propaganda type thing in a way the film would end up failing at the box office when it was released on october 5th 1966 in new york and then a month later in los angeles it would only gross 1.75 million dollars against its 2.5 million dollar budget in comparison hudson's early rom-com send no flowers had grossed $9 million two years earlier. Hudson hoped that it was at least well-received by critics, kind of giving him some some kind of win here, but it wasn't. Times Review read, Director John John Frankenheimer and Director of Photography James Wong Howe 
managed to give the most implausible doings a look of credible horror. Once Rock appears, though, the spell is shattered and through no fault of his own. Instead of honestly exploring the ordeal of assuming a second identity, the script subsides for nearly an hour into conventional horror. It would end up being considered a box office bomb and the first failure of Frankenheimer's career. Um, James Wong, however, would receive an Oscar nomination for the film. Frankenheimer said when it first came out, those who wanted to see a Rock Hudson picture didn't want to see Rock Hudson in this part. And those who wanted to see this kind of movie didn't want to see Rock Hudson in it. <laughs> as, a, as a result, that leaves an audience of about five or six. He goes, this was literally a movie where you could call off the theater and you ask the owner, what times the seconds go on? And the owner would say, what time can you get here? Wow. Yeah. It would be 30 years before the legacy of the film began to change. And this is, again, almost 12 years after Rock Hudson's death. The film was released for its 30th anniversary in theaters again and then on home video. At the time of the re-release, Frankenheimer said it's the only picture that's gone from failure to classic without having success. He even claimed it wasn't even one of his best six movies. Uh, and he just said, for some reason, people love it. Uh, Frankenheimer takes some blame for the failure, saying he should never cut the scene of Tony meeting his daughter. He also said that the, there was confusion by the film's final image. But he also said that his great disappointment was that Kirk Douglas was not in the movie. Because if Douglas was in the movie, it would have been a real classic and not just a cult classic. But even with that, Seconds has become a favorite of many filmmakers over the years, with Park Chan-wook and Bong Joon-ho naming it as one of their favorite movies of all time. It has since been given a Criterion release, letting it gain a larger audience over the years. And after Hudson later revealed its secret of being a closeted gay man in Hollywood, many have looked back at the movie with a new context, seeing an actor revealing his almost true self and fears in his, his first big dramatic performance. So what worked about this movie, Thomas? Uh, I think definitely James Wong Howe's work on it. Yeah. it. It looks kind of unlike anything else of, yeah. of the era. Um, I mean, I think I think everybody like, you know, Saul Bass is obviously always great. Uh, Jerry Goldsmith, the legend, uh, yeah. doing some really interesting work here. Very, very disarming, eerie music. And and yeah, I think I think Rock Hudson absolutely 100 percent works against type here. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I, I, I was happy to see him when he finally did show up. And, and I think yeah. he, he's I think he's great in it. Yeah. And you, you got to think it's like, again, right in the middle of like the Doris Day rom-com like peak for him. And mm -hmm. he just says, screw it. I'm going to do this very different movie. Yeah. And you've, you've got to have you've got to have like a Rock Hudson type in it because that's the whole yeah. thing. They're like, this is we're going to give you because I mean, that's the whole thing. He's this guy is supposed to be special even amongst the seconds because they're saying yeah. we just had a breakthrough in the plastic surgery. You're going to be the very best of the seconds. Like if anyone's got a shot at being happy in their second life, it's going to be you because you're going to yeah. be Rock Hudson. You're going to have yeah. a beach house in Malibu like it had to be. I think it had to be someone, even yeah. if it hurt the movie at the time, like, and, and people just, you know, weren't that used to people with personas playing against type at, yeah. at, at that time. But um, it, it had to be somebody known for being good looking. It had to be somebody that like Hollywood made out to have it all, even though, like you said, we we came to find out later that he didn't, which which lends even more kind of significance to this movie. But mm -hmm. 
it, it did need that kind of, it's it's not it's not a punchline but it is it's not humorous but it is kind yeah. of a punchline of taking those bandages off and being like you are a movie star now yeah. um and like and i think hudson's like kind of push to say hey don't make me play the older character it's going to be better for the movie if i just play the younger version mm-hmm. like and i and i think he's right i think if you have kirk Douglas being the old version and and, and young version it doesn't land as well no same with if Olivier does it. It's just like, oh, it's just he went from old makeup to himself is mm-hmm. what it is. It just yep. doesn't work. And I think it makes a stronger statement on what Frankenheimer's trying to make of like old age versus youth. It's like instead of having a young person playing an old person, he actually has an old person playing an old person is the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But yeah, no, I, I, I was blown away initially by Hudson's performance. And it was kind of like with the mixture of this and giant. And then also his rom-coms, just seeing how much of a range he actually had as an actor was really incredible and, and not appreciating his time. We talked about with Giant that sometimes his life is overshadowed by what happened to him later in life with him being kind of the first, um, kind of becoming the face of the AIDS epidemic in a way, being kind of the first big high profile uh, case of it um, that was public. Um but his acting was was incredible, and he was very adamant about wanting to expand his horizons. And I talked about Henry Wilson earlier as his agent. He fired him after this movie, basically, as a way to continue to try to start something new. And not long after, ventured into TV um, in the early 70s and kind of had a whole new career after that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, and I think it's kind of a good kind of closer for Frankenheimer as well after these kind of political paranoia thrillers, uh, too. Um, so what didn't work about this movie, Thomas? Um, I really wish they didn't have the sexual assault blackmail yeah. scene in here because I think it needs to be and, his and choice. It needs to be it his needs, like, Yeah, it, it yeah. feels like a holdover from like traditional storytelling where like we have to maintain that like he's he's kind of a hero, like he was kind yeah. of pushed into this. But like, yeah, I, I, I think it muddles the whole thing by having him be That's blackmailed a, yeah. into doing it. Um, I agree. It, it, it that that doesn't feel at in agreement with like the rest of the way the story's being told and the rest of the way his character is explored yeah um it's a good so point. yeah that that that's that's one I, yeah I, I wish he wasn't i wish his hand wasn't forced because yeah, yeah it, it, it muddles kind of the message of the movie a little it, bit it takes away from from it being a morality tale as, mm-hmm. as it's like oh you were blackmailed into doing this thing that you didn't really want to do but should be more that he is convinced while he might reluctantly agree he still's like well you're right like my life really isn't anything let me have a whole fresh start type thing Mm -hmm. um but yeah and with the image i while there is no connection to anything i think it's because it's ambiguous and haunting it just it represents kind of the like the life he could have had if he tried Mm mm-hmm as, as tony essentially yeah dog and child living on the beach it's it's that's what you're that's the image you're seeing is the mm. thing and yeah it would have been if, if you if you if you saw it earlier of him like seeing that the the father and daughter on the beach that might be one thing but it's just yeah it just takes that like the thing that he thinks about at death is kind of the simplest thing that he could think of mm-hmm um but yeah that's it for me on that one um for film facts i have one thing 
you'll find this interesting. Seconds has a pretty strong connection to Brian Wilson hmm. of the Beach Boys. The story, which originated in October 67 or not, October 1967 article, Goodbye Surfing, Hello God, goes that when he arrived late to a theater showing of Seconds, Brian Wilson appeared to be greeted with on-screen dialogue saying, come in, Mr. Wilson. Oh. Because that's Tony mm-hmm. Wilson's name. He was convinced for some time that rival producer Phil Spector was taunting him through the movie, and then it was written about his recent traumatic experiences and intellectual pursuits, going so far as to note that even the beach was in it, a whole thing about the beach. He later canceled the forthcoming Beach Boys album, Smile, Mm. And the film reportedly frightened him so much that he did not visit another movie theater until 1982's E.T. the Extraterrestrial. Wow. So, so yeah. Where was that in Love and Mercy? <laughs> um, so, awards. The Beatrice Strait Award actor actually scenes that kills it. Uh-huh. I, it's two people for me. And, okay. And, and, I, and I'm not sure which one is, is the better pick here. It's either Murray Hamilton or Will Gear as the old man. I'd go Murray Hamilton. I think so too. I think, I think he has yeah. a little less screen time, but kind of the key to the movie or, or a big key mm-hmm. point to the movie. Will Gear is great as the old man, but Murray Hamilton does more with less is the thing. And I think, I think he's fantastic. And like I said, the tear, the kind of keep looking back at, at, at uh, Tony when like he's leaving to have this other chance. And yeah, like the hope is that he gets to have it because he put someone else in his place essentially. Um, but you never know. Can't be you. Okay. Now listen very carefully. Did you get the address today? Yes. Good. You're to use the name Wilson. Charlie, you just don't come back. I'm alive. More alive than I've been in the past 25 years. You've got to come tomorrow. Arthur, listen. If you don't show up, that's it. Think for Pete's sake. What have you got now? What? Annie Potts X Factor Award. Sporting actor, actress says the most memorable. Who do you who do you go with? Hmm. This is a little more uh, difficult. Difficult, I yeah. think. Who who do we count as supporting in this? I wonder if John Randolph counts as supporting in this, or 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 Salome Jens as Nora. Mm-hmm. Nora. I might give he, it to Randolph. I think he's good. Again, the scene like that scene in bed when he's looking up at the ceiling after like him and his wife don't have sex. Like that's the moment again. If you cut out the sexual assault, that's the moment where I think he makes the decision to go through with it. Mm-hmm. And you, the sexual assault has him waver. You almost don't have him to waver that much is the thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I mean, I, I personally, you know, coming into it, not knowing anything about it, you know, first 10 minutes of the movie, I'm like, oh, where's where's Rock Hudson? Where's Rock Hudson coming yeah. from? And and he ends up so compelling that I'm like, all right, well, I guess I'm with this guy for now I agree. And, until Rock Hudson. And then, then as things start to unfold, you're like, oh, he, he's going to be Rock Hudson. But um, but yeah, he carries it. And I, and I think with Hudson and Randolph being so good, it's like, as earlier, you don't lose. They're not the same person besides mm-hmm. the height, as you, as you talked about. I think they shot Randolph at like a, a lower angle to try to make him look taller than what he actually was mm-hmm. through most of the movie. 
but you have a, a consistency from performance to performance, I feel like. And that's a, a praise should be given to Randolph and Hudson. And so that leads me to the last question uh, or last award, the Gene Hackman MVP award, the person who carries the movie director, actor, composer, cinematographer. I, I might give it to James Wong Howe for this one. Cause there's just some, that, that, that is what stuck out to yeah. me is the, is the yeah. visual style of this movie. Um, I don't disagree with you on it. While I love Hudson, uh, how is one, again, look at the context. To me, this feels like how, after doing 50 years of being a cinematographer in Hollywood, saying, I'm putting everything on the table. Mm-hmm. Like, black and white's going out of style. It's 66. It's not really being used as much. It's around the time when black and white's about to be out of the competition at the Oscars. And they're still making a black and white movie. And he's saying, let me show you everything I've learned the past 50 years before this goes out of style. <laughs> and so it is quite amazing of it's so striking and stark. Um, and I, I honestly feel like to me, I've always seen him as like the greatest director of photography for black and white cinematography. He he's easily top three, but he might be the best of all time is the thing. And I mm. think seconds is one of his best, his best achievements is the thing. So I will go with him with this because I think if, if I'm choosing between him or Frankenheimer, I would pick him. I had the close second is Hudson mm-hmm. because I think to argue for him for a second, because he was told by some people not to do this, it's actually more courageous of him to try and put himself out on the line for this role. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the argument for him is that like he has more to lose here if this movie goes poorly than anyone else involved is the thing. And I think as a performance, maybe not at the time in people's eyes, I think he delivers. Mm-hmm. So it's tough. I think <sighs> my heart wants to go Hudson, but I understand how, if that makes sense. <laughs> like, it's like, I understand both. So if you want to go with how I'll go with how, I will do. We can, we can split vote. We can we'll, split. The I'll vote. split. I'll, I'll split vote because I, okay. I, I kind of want to do Hudson. I just, I, I, I can't. The movie relies so much on him and the context of him as, a, 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 like, at this period. Um, I think it's, I think it's a bold move. I think it's a bold move for him on a creative and personal way. It's mm-hmm. bold moves across the board for how in terms of how he shoots it. So I, I think it's. I would edge Hudson, but we'll go split. We'll go split here. I couldn't help it, Charlie. I had to find out where I went wrong. The years I've spent trying to get all the things I was told were important, that I was supposed to want. Things, not people or meaning, just things. And California was the same. They made the same decisions for me all over again, and they were the same things, really. It's gonna be different from now on. A new face, a new name. I'll do the rest. I know it's going to be different.
All right, final questions. Who would you cast in a modern remake of Seconds? All right, so I was thinking about this when I said, you know, you kind of had to have someone that was like a Rock Hudson, like you, like who, obviously, you know, the, the conversation these days is still like, who's who's a movie star these days and i think we've all kind of decided it's tom cruise but i don't think tom cruise as as great as tom cruise looks i think he's getting, he's getting a, little, a little too old for this yeah yeah, old yeah. For it. yeah 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 uh, but who's who's someone who's who's young and hot who's also like a good actor you know yeah uh there's that's the question yeah um so yeah i i, I knocked around a couple ideas i think i think Robert Pattinson is somebody that's still yeah got that kind of, even with Batman he, he broke it a little bit but he's still got that like pretty boy stigma that he can't break no matter yeah. how many weird movies he does um I think he'd be I think he'd be very good in this I do okay um I, you could also bring in like any of the kind of like superhero types you know like, yes. like, like, like a Chris Evans or a Chris Hemsworth <laughs> H- Henry Cavill popped in my head mm. mm-hmm yeah um a real because and this is major it's 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 he's on my mind because we did a patreon episode um i don't know if he can play it or not this is this is a curveball james marsden i love james marsden big james marsden guy i'm glad everybody glad everybody else is on the james marsden train now (laughs) well because because sean said he's like he goes you know you always pick chris chris pine as like your musical guy but like James Morrison kind of showed that he can also do the same some of the same stuff. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really seen him do a dramatic role up and up until uh, up until Jury Duty came out. I think me me and Ronald Gladden were the only two people in the world that had seen <laughs> Sex Drive multiple times, uh, and that was just, just that was just for James Marsden. Um, but I, but so we've we've gotten Chris Evans, we've got Hemsworth, we got Henry Cavill, we got Pattinson. We got James Marsden. Yeah, and I, I I think James Marsden showed his chops specifically in in Westworld. I mean, this is this. Yes. Um, he I thought it was great in Westworld. I didn't love the trajectory for his character, but uh, but I thought he performed it well. I I'd be interested in seeing him like doing the drunk scene. Hmm. Is the thing. Is that what we're going with 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 sure, Marsden? Let's do it. Okay. Okay. Real 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 curveball on that one. I gotta be real. Uh, he's 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 take i'm sure he's taking a lot of, well he was not taking any calls right now but he Strike will be taking years. some calls in in the future uh it, now that he's been nominated for uh an emmy for um i didn't realize he was nominated for emmy for that <laughs> or golden globe emmy yeah Go- no, they, emmy, they're, no, not, emmy, do, they're emmy. not doing golden globes right now yeah emmy. No, no, no. yeah he was nominated that's, for an emmy for for jury duty yeah that's wild i love it um two key questions here at the end of this thomas mm-hmm does this film fit with any other genres? Does this film fit with any other genre? Um, I mean, like we said, it is kind of it's a morality tale in in the in the sense of of uh Twilight Zone kind of. Um mm-hmm. that's a good comparison. It is very much this feature link Twilight Zone episode. Mm, I get I could one hundred percent. I I tried Google after I was done with this movie i tried googling i was like oh it's just like that twilight zone episode and i googled like twilight zone episode plastic surgery and all that came up is the the eye of the beholder one you know where it's like maybe it wasn't plastic surgery maybe they're getting transferred into the bodies but this is listeners out there somebody back me up there was a twilight zone episode where it was like an old couple that were going in to have a procedure done to like both be younger Mm -hmm. and one of them 
they, they like take them into separate rooms and like one of them backs out uh and, and it's called decides, downsizing yeah yeah, yeah downsizing. <laughs> and, and decides like not to go through with it um i swear it might have been like outer limits or one of those but or uh, okay. I, I swear it was was uh twilight zone but now i can't find anything about it yeah um and it's not downsizing i know it's not downsizing um i did see <laughs> that movie though tried to put it out of my mind um sorry, sorry. <laughs> but yeah I, th- I think that kind of uh, uh, uh you know that very rod serling specific twilight zone uh sci-fi um mm. uh i think yeah i think that's probably it I, there's not much like it's a midlife crisis movie if that's a thing yeah, yeah, yeah. Mi- uh, mid-century horror like you know what i mean like suburban horror maybe i don't know it's it's uh yeah but then that leads to the big question thomas how does this film fit within the dystopian genre <laughs> uh is, or does it it's i i don't i mean it's it's it is still a very small movie you know yeah. it's it's I I personally wouldn't say that it's dystopian until we fa- like like I think like we were saying I think like the trailer tries to make it a dystopian movie like yes tries to make I, it la jete in a weird way it, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 um yeah I think if if we had some kind of idea that like oh my gosh everybody everybody's done this like yeah. there's there's so many people around like they say in the movie like it could be the person standing next to you like but we don't get quite that far and and so i think you know with dis, with a dystopian movie i i personally think it needs to have you know i, I could see a dystopian movie in this in which you know at, 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 if you have enough money or or whatever yeah. you can you can hit the reset button on life and how that changes society but the this movie in particular seems focused on his individual journey and not mm. how this affects society. So I don't think we're ever fully like delivered a dystopia. So like it's, it's, it's an interesting setup that could be the setup for a dystopian film, but I, I don't know that it, the scale gets wide enough for us to receive that. I don't know. I, 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 I do think the the back half when everything starts to kind of fall apart and you kind of, see more of like what's in with the company mm-hmm. it has dystopian elements is the thing that's why yeah, like, yeah, yeah yeah it's and so that's why everyone kind of includes it on the list and again i think it's an interesting lo-fi version of what you can do with like a dystopian genre the dystopian genre of bringing this idea of the mysterious organization that has a hand in society that you're unaware of basically mm-hmm. um and also this kind of idea of like rich elitist and and the powers they have over the regular individual and it it, it again it kind of teases more of a darker mm-hmm. uh turn at the end about reality um yeah that so i i think i think i would classify it as a dystopian movie it's just not as you're not fully seeing a world but you're seeing the beginnings of a world is the thing mm. is what I would argue. Cause I said that. it's it, again, and, to, and, and the idea of like putting mental, like putting your mental self into a younger physical self and kind of the detachment of that. I don't know. It feels somewhat matrix like is like early matrix, like yeah. of, of Neo being detached from his matrix body and what his real self is. 
Um, it's like, and we'll dare talk about I, that. With, dare I say, Aeon Flux when you can clone yeah. yourself and 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 just keep living your life over and over again. I agree. I agree. So I, just think, <laughs> I think in the moment, double Karen Kusama reference in, in I know, one episode. So, but yeah, I think in the moment, it's it's one of the better versions of what you can do to kind of to play with the genre. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I think I, I, I can see a world in which this is like the setup for a dystopian film, but I, I don't think it itself is even concerned w- with that's that scope. Yeah. Yet. I, 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 I don't, but this is, yeah, this is why I could see it'd be an interesting TV show, maybe like a, a mini series of some mm. kind. I don't know. You want to see a dystopian movie with a very small scope that doesn't pull it off. I think it's actually on our list, but probably is. the, the Fahrenheit 451 HBO oh, original. Oh, yeah, I didn't see that one. Yeah, it, is, it feels so small when you're watching it, and there and, and you know it's Fahrenheit 4. It's a dystopian film. It's like there's this fascist government, and it's just like every scene is just Michael Shannon and Michael B. Jordan, and you like barely see anything else of the world, and it's just like oh, I'm not buying any of this. <laughs> um. All right. So next week. Uh, David's coming on. We're going to talk about the matrix. Um, kind of continue this, this idea of, uh, other mental versus physical states and also kind of a movie that deals with someone's, I think, personal journey outside the movie in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll talk about that more next week. If you're listening to this now tomorrow, if you're listening to the day of, if not, it's past, but tomorrow we're doing our family paradise screening at new art starts at 10 30 PM. Hope to see you there. The editor, Paul Hirsch is going to be there to sign some books. So if you can, Get a copy of a long time ago in a, in a cutting room far, far away. Get it. He'll be there to sign it, hopefully. But yeah, and also if if you're if you haven't joined our Patreon, join that to hear more exclusive content. We do at least two shows, two shows a month. Um, usually in vain with kind of a tangent episode or a, a side episode for some stuff we're covering on the main show. We might change it up. Who knows? But we have the one dollar, five dollar, ten dollar levels. So do that if you can. But yeah, that's all we have in this episode. If you have any questions for us. Feel free to contest the podcast at gmail.com. Send us your questions, comments. And if you're a new listener of the show or a fan of the show, and for some reason you haven't subscribed to us, be sure to do so so you can stay up to date on all of our new episodes. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or your podcast. And if you haven't already, be sure to write us a review on your preferred podcast platform. Uh, <laughs> try Everything I can think of to tie it into this movie feels a little too dark. Um <laughs> Well, you said it was gonna be a dark month, Thomas. You said it was that's, gonna be a dark that's month. That's true. That's true. You know, but but you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't be a second. You can't have another go at it. So you know, this is your only shot to give us a review. So just do it now. Don't put it off. Yeah. Just do it now. Like, don't I regret don't wanna, it. I don't want to have to go make a whole other, whole other podcast to try to get more validation in my <laughs> life. This is a different podcast, and we all look like Rock Hudson. <laughs> just uh, take our I- word for it. That's the beauty of a podcast. Um, and finally, don't forget to like and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, or whatever it's called. Uh, Instagram, Letterboxd, TikTok, all those places. Thomas, as always, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. And thank you all for listening. We hope you listen to more episodes soon. Bye. Bye.